The board of Woolworths Group PLC met this evening and agreed that administration was the only option. History will record that after 99 years of trading, it was the recession of 2008 which brought Woolies to its knees. But the truth is that this is a company that has been struggling for some time. It's December 2008. Woolworths has collapsed into administration. Little did anyone know at the time, but many of the high street shops that Woolworths left behind would be taken on by B&M. This would be a key moment in the growth of B&M. B&M had been a small retailer with 21 shops in the northwest of England, but everything changed when Simon Aurora and his brothers bought it for £525,000. Today, it is worth £5 billion. I'm Graham Ruddick, and this is Business Leader, a podcast that takes a second look at big business stories. In this episode, we look at the remarkable story behind how B&M went from a small Blackpool-based retailer that was months from going bust into a FTSE 100 company valued at more than Marks & Spencer. We speak to Simon Aurora about how he built B&M along with his brothers, Bobby and Robin. We're going to look at this story in two parts. In this first episode, we will look at how the Aurora brothers found B&M and expanded the chain. And in the second episode, we will look at how they took B&M from a promising, fast-growing business into the Premier League of UK companies. In brief, I was born in Manchester. My parents came to the UK from Delhi in 1968. I was born in 1969. They were market traders. I spent my childhood watching hardworking parents do outdoor markets, uh, and they sold handicrafts that they were importing from India and supplying members of the public through the markets, albeit through my teenage years, that changed into a uh, small cash and carry warehouse in Manchester, supplying independent retailers and market traders. I did well at school. Uh, they were the classic hardworking immigrants that uh, scrimped and saved and got their, their sons a good education. And I had the opportunity to go to read law at Cambridge. And after graduating, I started a career as a professional in London. Two years with McKinsey & Co, Strategy Consulting, then a year with uh, 3i in Venture Capital. And then that was followed by a year in the financial markets at Barclays Bank as a city trader. But what that tells you is that I had three jobs in four years upon graduating, which indicates the fact that at heart, I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I came from a, a small business family. I should also mention that within our nuclear family, we suffered a bit of a tragedy uh, when I was 17. I lost my father. Uh, he was 44. And one's read about this, met other people who suffered parental loss at a relatively early age. I think it's fair to say that it can, for a lot of people, put fire in your belly uh, in terms of wanting to exert control on your life, as opposed to feeling completely out of control uh, when you uh, go through something like that. So in the mid-1990s, uh, at the age of 25, I called my younger brother, Bobby, and we discussed setting up a new company called Orient Sourcing Services Limited. And the aim for that business was to import housewares and home furnishings, predominantly from Asia, and supply UK retailers, everyone from Tesco and B&Q through to the independent shopkeeper that had previously been served by our late parents' business. We had first mover advantage in that we were importing kitchenwares, tablewares, housewares, 
meddling in towels, uh, rugs and throws from Asia and supplying UK retailers at very attractive prices. Uh, this product previously perhaps had been made in Portugal, Spain, Italy, France, the UK. However, wearing my sort of McKinsey strategy hat, I was aware that we were a middleman. And whilst the business was making it good margins, I think I remember getting to the age of 29, 30, and it was making about 6 million a year uh, of EBITDA. We were very mindful that pretty much all the products we sold had the customer's brand on them. And at some point we'd be disintermediated. Either the factory would send a sales rep to the retailer or the retailer would send a buyer directly to the factory. So one of the things I picked up from my McKinsey days is that when they teach you at Harvard Business School about entrepreneurship, that the elective on entrepreneurship really emphasizes the importance of cycles and that how all businesses go through cycles and successful entrepreneurs are ones that pick the right moments to buy and pick the right moments to, to divest. And so I set about finding the, the natural, most compelling trade buyer for that business. And to cut a long story short, at the age of 30, uh, we'd sold that business. My brothers and I, we were at the bottom reaches of the Sunday Times rich list. So we ticked the financial security box. And I thought at that point, job done. And set about trying to learn some hobbies and build a house for ourselves and that sort of thing. Um, I can tell you, Graham, that within a year, the warm glow of having done a financial transaction and achieving a liquidity event very quickly wore, wore off. I was bored to the point of desperation within a year of the transaction completing. And so that brings us to... December 2004. And in the run-up to that acquisition of BNM, I did nothing more sophisticated than do a company's house search for retail businesses. I didn't want to do a startup. I needed, say, perhaps a minimum turnover of 5, 10 million. I didn't want to bet the bank on going into the retail sector because I was mindful that my brothers and I, we were importers, distributors. And whilst we had sourcing and supply chain expertise, we didn't really know anything about retail. And so I was looking for a small to medium-sized retail business in which we could cut our teeth, learn the trade, but obviously from a strategic perspective, be close or own the ultimate consumer. The big difference in retail is that obviously you have all these members of the public coming in and they're your customers, you own them through your brand, whereas as the intermediary in the previous business, Orient Sourcing Services, you're the middleman and you don't really own the consumer. So... Um, Bought the business, it cost £525,000. It comprised 21 somewhat scruffy bargain shops dotted around the northwest. It was based in Blackpool. The business had a turnover of about £50 million, but was loss-making. And the reason why we were able to buy a chain of 20 shops turning over £50 million for just £525,000 is that it was loss-making. And it was probably losing a couple of million pounds a year. And on one analysis... If we hadn't bought it, it was going to run out of cash within six to eight weeks. So it was a, a turnaround distressed situation. The other reason why I like this business is it was discount. And one could see that culturally discount was a growing sector. You can look at the fashion business and look at Primark. You can look at grocery and see Aldi and Lidl. But the same is true across many different sectors. Value wins structurally over time. Obviously, the discount or value end of the market spoke to our skill set, which was sourcing consumer goods out of Asia. Asia's good at low-value consumer goods, mass-produced. And one of the guiding principles that I was applying was play to your strengths. So 
the opportunity play to our strengths in that we could see the sort of product that we've been importing from Asia and supplying the likes of Tesco and B&Q, we could see that product selling on the shelves of B&M at prices that were disruptive, that were materially below the prevailing market price in mid-market retailers, and uh, therefore gave us an opportunity to do something different in the market rather than just simply being the same as everybody else. Can I just ask you about your father? Sure. Um, because I've read in previous interviews, you, you talked about what an inspiration he was and how much you learned from him about ambition, about the importance of education, about being an entrepreneur in general. H- how much did you learn from him? And, and also how much do you think you literally had in your DNA about being a passionate about business? It's a lovely question. I, I think it's fair to say that even if you don't realize it, living in a business family, even a small business family, kids pick up around the kitchen table the world of business, you know, dealing with staff, dealing with difficult customers, finding opportunities. It just it just sinks in. However, I would also overlay with that that one of the things my late father gave my brothers and I, which was really very special, was self-belief. So there's a there's a type of parenting where there's a tendency to criticize your kids and to perhaps undermine them. Um, our experience was that our late father would tell us almost on a daily basis that you can be anything you want to be. Uh, and so instilling a, a sense of self-confidence is something that I'm grateful for. And then obviously you observe work ethic and, you know, living in Manchester, uh, working class origins, you, you observe and learn work ethic. And, and you realize that if you work hard, things get better for you in terms of your, your life, whether that's a nicer house, a nicer holiday or a nicer car. So, so these things are sort of values uh, rather than specifics, but absolutely instrumental in terms of our subsequent business journey. The other thing I want to ask you about is about McKinsey, because you're, you're about the fifth or sixth McKinsey alumni that I've interviewed sure. on, on the podcast. Is that an essential part of, of what happened following in your career and building the businesses? It, what do you learn from McKinsey that sets you up so well to build a business? So the point to remember is that for me particularly, I joined McKinsey as a graduate. My degree was not economics or business studies, it was in law. And so the way I think about it is that McKinsey was almost like getting paid to do an MBA because through the training they gave me and the types of assignments and projects you're on as an analyst, you know, you're, you're the guy doing the spreadsheets or tidying up the presentations or doing a bit of research, but you're learning all the time and you're learning across multiple sectors and multiple different challenges, be that M&A, be that organic growth, be that cost reduction, be that new markets. So for me, it was a hugely valuable experience, but at a softer level, it also perhaps teaches you to think big, to think strategically. And uh, yeah, I, I, I had a great time there. And uh, yeah, the perfect example of how I applied my learnings was the decision with hindsight that was wonderful to exit the import distribution business, the middleman, and become a retailer because you know, I, I take no pride in this. It's, 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 it's not a good thing, but about seven, eight years after we'd sold Orient Sourcing Services Limited, it doesn't exist anymore because as one could foresee, eventually it was disintermediated. How crucial has impatience been as well for you as, as an attribute? Because you touched on it a little bit there and you're moving between businesses within those five years. I think you've said before, it, it almost sets off alarm bells when people look at your CV. It's, it's clear that that's one of your attributes. Has that been a key driver for you since? Is it something that has sort of pushed you forward as a CEO? Yeah, you could call it impatience. Um, if you were walking around the offices of B&M, 
you'd see a strap line on the walls um, every now and then that says, welcome to B&M Speed. And what I'm referring to is that, yes, certainly through my 20s and 30s, I was a man in a hurry. But on a more serious level, I do consider that for growing businesses, disruptive businesses, it's better to be fast and 80, 90% right rather than being 100% right, but slow. Um, another way of putting that is to um, is this phrase, uh, if you're going to fail, fail fast. So yeah, absolutely. Um, we consider speed to be an intrinsic part of B&M's competitive advantage. And the way to think about that is, you know, from the point at which we're offered us a vacant store and with negotiating the rent and the lease and getting the keys through to getting it shop fitted, through to the speed at which a checkout colleague gets the customer through the till. Just as an aside, um, it's, it's well known in retail that the number one determinant of a consumer's customer experience is how quickly they were dealt with at the till. If you're slow at the till, they come away perhaps subconsciously not being as happy as if they sail through. So yeah, that speed is important. And even on this sort of day-to-day commercial decision-making around product and pricing strategy, just be quick because speed wins. And particularly when you're competing against larger corporates that are more bureaucratic, have more layers of management, it can be a source of competitive advantage versus those multi-billion revenue businesses that you're competing with when you're 20 shops based in the Northwest. The Aurora brothers' experience with their first business, an Orient, would prove crucial in building B&M. Simon Aurora would later tell financial analysts and shareholders in B&M that the company's magic source was how good its supply chain was. Bobby Aurora's expertise in sourcing products meant that Simon Aurora could focus on other things, in particular, finding sites for new B&M shops. How important was was working in Orient to what happens next? Because I think you told investors and analysts on on various earnings calls that the supply chain was the magic source for B&M. So what what did you learn both before and during Orient that set you up so well to do that at B&M? So the way to answer that question is to go back to one of the things I learned at 3i in venture capital, which is when assessing whether to invest in a business, to exaggerate the point, it's all about management, management, management. And another way of putting that is it's better to back strong managers in a mediocre business model than it is to back mediocre managers in an excellent business model. And so what that tells you is this phrase I used earlier about playing to your strengths. I recognize that a competency that my brother and I had that we thought was our strength was this sourcing and supply chain management of consumer goods out of Asia. And so the reason why it was so valuable in B&M's subsequent success is that we were able to split the roles to play to those strengths. Uh, My younger brother, Bobby, he's a couple of years younger than myself, he'd spent all his life since leaving school on exactly that, sourcing consumer goods and managing that supply chain. And so he took on the role of group trading director and became responsible for all the product, all the prices, what quantities were brought in. And unusually for a chief exec, which was, I suppose, my nominal job title, I never got involved. Friends or business associates would ask me about a product that we sell or a supplier we deal with. I never got involved. I left it entirely to Bobby because I knew that in Bobby, I had a world-class operator for that function. 
That then allowed me to have the bandwidth to do all the other stuff, be that distribution, store operations, strategy, oversee the finance side. And for me in particular, store rollout. Because having Bobby trusted to do all the product stuff creates a lot of capacity for me to spend time on other things. Whereas normally in a retail business, a chief exec would probably be spending a quarter, a third of their time engaged in range reviews, range um, finalization, pricing strategy. I just didn't get involved. And for me, that time and that capacity, I was able to devote to a store opening program, which with hindsight was quite remarkable. Um, that's the, probably one of the one things that I'm really proud of about B&M's growth and that I think I got to the 10,000 hours acquiring UK shops over my 17, 18 years at B&M. And, and perhaps I should explain what I mean by the 10,000 hours. It's the Malcolm Gladwell Indeed. theory. And I think the book is called Outliers. And Gladwell talks about whether it's in athletics, whether it's in music, whether it's um, in business or academia, if you do 10,000 hours of something, you've got every chance of being world-class at it. And where that translates to my experience at B&M is that um, from the 21 shops we acquired to the 710 stores at B&M in the UK that we had when I left, I acquired everyone. I didn't have a property director. And that's something like 15 million square feet of selling space in the UK alone. And I'm told by people in the commercial retail property industry, certainly other corporates have done that. Of course they have, but no individual has ever done that. So that's my 10,000 hours and I just got very good at it. That would be extraordinary in any market, but you obviously did that in a market where the retail industry has been turned upside down by the growth of online. So could you just talk, talk and, and without wishing to take you through every single store, could you sort of talk through your general approach as to how you would identify a location that you're interested in and then how you would then go about securing that site? So you learn from your mistakes in the first one or two years. And you soon, because you obsess about the topic, you soon understand what are the defining characteristics of a successful B&M. And over time, it just becomes intuitive. For the first few years, I do thousands of miles in a car going around looking at sites. But with the advent of technology, and in particular, Google Earth, I didn't need to even go anymore to physically visit. I could do it from an aerial shot or a street view, just moving my little yellow man around the streets in, in Google Earth. And again, Unusually for a large corporate, we didn't run numbers in advance. We didn't have a model or use databases. It was just an intuitive confidence that I knew what were the ingredients of a successful store. I do want to, um, however, acknowledge two other things that were happening alongside this growth trajectory, one of which you've mentioned online, but the second one was the global financial crisis. If you cast your mind back to the global financial crisis, the events of autumn 2008 uh, and the next couple of years, practically every few months, a national, well-established retail chain went bust. Woolworths, Quicksave, Comet, JJB, the list goes on. Focus, DIY, any number of uh, names I could give you. At the time of the financial crisis, the business minister, the trade minister, was someone called Lord Young. And he made a comment at a business dinner where he said, um, a recession or a financial crisis is a good time to be an entrepreneur. He was slated in the papers for being wholly insensitive and not having any understanding of the difficulties that businesses and SMEs were going through. I understand the criticism, but actually there is some validity in what he's saying. 
Because as I reflect back on that period, when, for example, Woolworths went bust, Woolworths was a 70-year-old chain, 750 locations around the UK. Everyone in the industry knew that at some point, Woolworths was likely to fail. A third of its sales were CDs, videos, DVDs. That was all going you know, online. And it had a, a tired estate in town centres as opposed to modern out-of-town stores. What people didn't predict is that when it did go bust, we would be in a global financial crisis and the established players on the high street, be that Marks and Spencers, Boots, WH Smiths, the fashion retailers, they were battening down the hatches. They weren't looking to spend lots of capex and acquire 10, 20, 50, 100 stores. And so you had this situation where this estate suddenly became available and the only people looking to invest were B&M, Poundland and Home Bargains. So a perfect example of how a dislocation, a crisis, a financial crisis, created an opportunity for an upstart, B&M, who, you know, some of these landlords we were approaching to take the Woolworth store from them, they'd never heard of us. They wouldn't have dreamt of letting us that, like that anchor store in a shopping mall or on a high street to a scruffy discount bargain chain. They were thinking it would be a, a Costa coffee or a nice M&S or something. So we took advantage of the look and the circumstances we found ourselves. And also because we had found a bricks and mortar model that doesn't need online, that doesn't need click and collect, that keeps it simple and is disruptive through price and, and range selection, that we could profitably occupy space that was being vacated either because of the financial crisis or because mainstream retailers were consolidating or retrenching and shifting their sales to online. You've touched on it there, but what, when you were looking at Google Earth or when you were driving around, what became the criteria for what made a site with potential for B&M? So ironically, we love being next door to the competition because we have an innate belief that our products are great value for money, better price than the competition. We have better stock availability. We're on trend. So we believe we've got great products. So if you've got great products, why would you not want to be next to somebody that might be 10 times bigger, but you think you've got a more compelling proposition for the consumer? So we love being next door to Tesco, Asda, Sainsbury's, Morrison's. We like being next door to Aldi and Lidl because Aldi and Lidl are excellent on own label grocery. We're excellent on branded grocery and general merchandise. A nice example to give you would be, you know, we, we sell a small amount of pet care pet food, pet toys, pet beds, etc. We find that when we're next door to a pets at home, our pet department does well. And, and similarly with, um, you know, if we're next door or across the road from a B&Q, our DIY department does well because customers are coming to that location anyway. And we believe we've got a, a more compelling proposition in terms of the products actually on our shelves. So far, we have heard about how Simon Aurora built B&M strategy, but haven't really spoken yet about what it was actually offering to customers inside its shops. The strategy was focused on keeping prices down. That influenced all decisions. Which brings me to another remarkable thing about B&M. It doesn't do any advertising and relies on word of mouth to attract new customers. So why is that? The business was built over the 17, 18 years of consecutive revenue growth through word of mouth. And that is the most cost-effective marketing and the cheapest marketing. The conversation is almost turning full circle because one of the reasons 
We didn't have loyalty cards or a sophisticated marketing program or advertising campaigns. Is that that didn't play to our strengths. It's not something that we know or claim to have any particular competency in. And we took the view that rather than having 1%, 2% of our revenues invested in advertising, reinvest that in price. We wanted our prices to be our advert. We wanted our prices to be disruptive so that the consumer would not help themselves tell their neighbor, tell their friend, tell their relatives about this new store that's opened up in town and the prices are 20, 30% cheaper than what they used to. So we felt we didn't need it. And actually, as a point of detail, I think there was one Christmas where we did try it, a very small limited trial of some TV advertising. And what we found actually is that you don't really make money out of it because you're always going to have a relatively modest share of voice because everyone's throwing money at advertising, particularly, for example, on TV and, and press. So it's really difficult to get noticed. And then actually, if you think about the margins on what, you know, we're, we're about a 10% profit margin business. For every million pounds you spend on advertising, you sort of want to do 10 million of turnover to make a million pounds profit to pay for it. And actually what we found is that you don't really make any money. So um, one of the things that my late father taught his sons was, um, and everyone said this, this, this phrase, turnover is vanity, profit is sanity. I didn't see the merit in throwing money at advertising just to boost the top line, but not necessarily enhance the bottom line. Inside the stores, what did you focus on? Because I've read you focus on a low skew count, you focused on overbuying things you thought were popular, but then you also were very intense on refreshing your range as often as possible to encourage customers to come back as often as often as they could, really. So were they two things that really were key tenants and what else was, was vital as part of a B&M store? So this takes us to strategy. And the strategy was to be a limited assortment discounter for general merchandise and branded grocery. Limited assortment discounter is what the industry calls Aldi Little Netto. Uh, and the logic is that you only stock the best sellers. You have a limited assortment. But by virtue of only stocking the best sellers, you get two or three benefits. Your physical store is smaller than your competition. The way to illustrate that point is a 15,000 square foot Aldi versus a 100,000 square foot Tesco Extra. Yeah, Smaller store means lower costs, operating costs, lower wages, but it also feeds all the way through into the supply chain and the buying. If you're only doing the best sellers, the high volume lines, you've got a greater ability as you roll out your store estate to source direct from the manufacturer, wherever that manufacturer might be, whether that's in China or Indonesia or whether it's a, a biscuit factory in, in, in Burton. Um, you're dealing direct with manufacturers rather than middlemen because you're buying big volumes. It also means that your supply chain is less complex and it's lower cost. If you've only got 10,000 SKUs or 5,000 SKUs, that's easier to manage through your distribution centers than having 50,000 SKUs, which is what you might find in a full-service Tesco Extra or a full-service B&Q depot. So we wanted to be limited assortment, and that allows you to have lower costs, which in turn allows you to have a lower selling price. There's like a, a virtuous flywheel there. So, so, so that was the strategy around product and how the stores are laid out. So we first present the consumer with our branded grocery. We defy anyone to go through our grocery aisles 
and not pick up something that they need, whether that's a jar of instant coffee granules or whether it's a can of baked beans or whether it's some cereal or a bag of sugar. There's always something or some toothpaste or shampoo or uh, washing up liquid. There's always something that you're running low on in your pantry. So you start the basket with something that you know you need. Because we're a discounter and we're selling branded goods cheaper than the mainstream, you've immediately established in the consumer's mind that they're saving money because a lot of shoppers, they know what they pay for a bag of sugar at uh, Tesco's or Sainsbury's or uh, their local shop. They know what they pay for their toothpaste. They know what they pay for their washing up liquid. So you've immediately established that price credentials. And then you present them with the best sellers in each of our many general merchandise categories, be that pet care, be that toys, be that DIY, be that homewares, be that gifting or gardening in the summer or Christmas decorations in the winter. That's the logic, just the best sellers. Another way of expressing that is when you go to a category specialist and you want, for example, a choice of 50 different colors for your bath towels, a John Lewis or a department store, that choice comes at a cost, comes at a cost to the retailer and therefore inevitably at a cost to the consumer. For most people, a choice of eight colors is ample. (laughs) White, powder blue, maybe a dusty pink, a cream, an ivory, you you can imagine. If you just have eight colors, you've got a five meter run rather than a a whole department of towels or a 30 meter run. Everything changes, the whole economic dynamic changes. Your costs are lower, your volumes are in just the best sellers and you pass those savings on to the consumer. So so that's the that's the logic of the layout and the range proposition. So far, Simon Aurora has spoken with great clarity about the vision for B&M. But if you think it was a smooth journey or easy, think again. In fact, it nearly all ended after less than a year. Well, I have to share with you that it wasn't plain sailing. In the first year of ownership, my brother and I were horrified within six months or so that all the product we'd bought from our Orient sourcing services days and we had filled the shops with wasn't selling anything like as much as we thought it would. And, and what we had done is made the mistake of just taking the full ranges from our previous business, putting them in the store and perhaps neglecting the categories that we didn't have previous knowledge of. And so it, it, there was an imbalance in, in what we were selling. And where I'm going with that is that I can share with you that about, about six months in, I thought, this is not going to work. Um, we've brought in all the product that we know. It's selling okay, but this business is not turning around fast enough. And at the time, we had a larger competitor that had been around for many years called Home Bargains, based in Liverpool. Really good business, uh, run by an extremely talented family uh, called the Morris family. And I made a discreet approach to them via their auditor that I managed to just look up the details from company's house for. And I offered Home Bargains, the business, B&M, for three million pounds. I thought, I've, we've sort of stabilised it, but struggling to know how to make this a success. And maybe if we just walk away with a two million pound profit for a year's work, we'll go and find something else. Um, the response we got back through a third party, so it's hearsay, was no thanks, we'll buy it from the administrator when you go bust. Um, now, if there's nothing that's going to put fire in belly, um, it's that. <laughs> so um, we carried on, we persevered. We started putting Bobby and the team, putting a lot of effort into those categories that weren't perhaps so familiar to us, be that toys, be that the grocery, made some people changes, recruited better talent. 
and I work very hard on making more sophisticated the supply chain, the the process from which product flows from a factory through to the shelf in terms of how many pieces, frequency of delivery. A lot of IT went in to make our supply chain best in class. And together, those various elements allowed us to turn the corner. And actually, I think a year after buying it, it was making about £3 million profit. And then, as you know, I think last year it made about £600 million EBITDA. So it's been a phenomenal journey. But there were lots of bumps along the way. How humbling was that early experience? Because obviously you've you've built one successful business already. You've been to Cambridge, you've been to McKinsey, you've had a successful career. You bought the business thinking that you could make it a success. And then all of a sudden what you thought you knew isn't working. So um, you use the word humble um, or humbling. And it's something that really resonates with me. And um, let me perhaps give a slightly longer answer than, than you'd expect. Level five leaders are the top tier, the ones who really make a difference. I'm not a level five leader. Um, And the observation is that they have two key qualities. One is an absolute conviction in their organization's ability to succeed in the long term, notwithstanding whatever's thrown at it. The other quality is humility. A lot of these incredible leaders in person actually remarkably humble, shy, and would credit luck the people around them, and they would downplay their own involvement. I absolutely agree that you need a significant amount of humility if you want to be a successful business leader. And the way that humility expresses itself is in two or three different ways. One is an understanding that you yourself can't do everything and are not, are not excellent at everything, and you should surround yourself with people that are better than you at the things that they do. The second is this sense of healthy paranoia, this humility to know that you're not perfect, you will make mistakes, bad things will happen in your business that you overlooked or you haven't thought of. And that healthy paranoia, that sense that waking up every day, worrying that someone's about to eat your lunch or something's about to go wrong or you've made a mistake in the past that's going to come back to bite you in the backside, that humility makes you a better leader because you you plan for those eventualities. When something does go wrong, hopefully you've already got a plan B or you've got something you've already thought about it before it's happened. Or indeed, even better, it doesn't go wrong because you've thought about something that might go wrong and you've stopped happening in the first place. So um, whether it was the difficulty in the first year of turning it around or whether it was a number of low points uh, that happened subsequently, the most acute was when we moved from Blackpool to Liverpool We started up a brand new depot that was our primary number one, probably only depot, that was employing 700 people that were all brand new recruited because it's about an hour and a quarter drive. Very few of the colleagues from the old place in Blackpool were moving over to the new place. When we went live in the new place in Liverpool, and this is no criticism of the people, it was just this happens when people start up a new depot or or make a big move like a big geographic move like that. It was a nightmare. It happened in autumn. We suddenly saw lots of gaps on shelves as we got into the peak October, November trading periods. I was getting phone calls from colleagues at stores asking whether are we going bust. Empty shelves is normally a sign that there are financial difficulties. And Simon, Bobby, Robin, Aurora, we were all over it, working night shifts, working day shifts, all hands on deck. Um, We thought we were going to lose the business. And it wasn't a small business at this point. It was a 
a business turning over a few hundred million and making tens of millions. And we thought it was going to go bust because you know, we, we operate in a just-in-time basis and our stock's very fast-moving. If your supply chain grinds up, your shops look like Russian communist bakeries from the 1980s very quickly. So yeah, lots of sleepless nights and um, moments of extreme fear. But as I look back, yeah, it was a particularly large pothole. But I think those episodes are useful because they demonstrate to you that things go wrong. And so you should, you should never be overconfident in your abilities. Looking back, is there a, was there a paranoia that was always there? As in, was there a constant thing that you were worrying about throughout building the business? It's a great observation. If I was lying on a psychiatrist's couch, I would have to accept that um, the shock of losing my best friend, my mentor, my beloved father at the age of 17, he was 44. It was a, a tragedy out of the blue, heart attack out of the blue. That, for me, black swan moment, perhaps drives that paranoia, which ultimately, I'd like to think, drove business success. But yeah, um, that's just the way it is. And uh, I, I guess the way for your listeners to think about it is that perhaps you can harness these challenges you have in your life in a positive way. And there can be some good that comes out of it. You've been listening to Business Leader with me, Graham Ruddick. Our producer is Anushka Tate. We will be back with the second part of the story behind BNM in our next episode, which will be with you next week. In that episode, we will speak to Simon Aurora about how BNM went from a promising business into one of the biggest retailers in Europe and all the challenges that were involved in scaling up the business. In the meantime, for more business analysis and interviews, check out businessleader.co.uk or sign up to our newsletter, Opt to Lunch, at businessleader.co.uk forward slash newsletter. <laughs>